You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 9. We need to talk. Welcome to Denver Orbit, an audio magazine that features voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm Ryan Connell. And I'm Josh Madison. And boy, is it cold out there. How cold is it? I don't know, lower 40s maybe? Oh, I I thought you were... So you weren't like setting up a joke or... Mm, what? Mm, no, 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 I wasn't. Just saying, just saying it's cold out. That's just stating a fact. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit chilly. Yeah. All right. Um, cool. So our first segment today is a story that comes to us from Kelly Short and Queer. Uh, content warning, there is a mention of sex in this story. You've been warned. Now that I'm a little over a decade into my transition from female to male, I just have to laugh at the way people interacted with my gender when I was first starting to come out as transgender. Most people in my life already knew, so it was a brand new experience for me to have to negotiate disclosing my trans identity to cisgender gay men who were beginning to flirt with me. There was a decent amount of culture shock as I realized how many assumptions there were about shared experiences, many of which I didn't have because I was socialized female. This is a story about an ill-fated attempt at dating early in my transition. I was working at an office supply store when I started taking testosterone. Dealing with the public in a retail setting, it was very interesting seeing how people were starting to perceive me differently. Sundays were usually pretty quiet at work, so I was pretty much just hanging out with Sharon at customer service when Isaac came in. He came up to my register and explained that he wanted to buy some chairs and also needed iron-on transfers for a Halloween costume. I pointed out a few options and he said, you're just the cutest little person I've ever seen. I blushed and pointed out, um, this one is $12.99 and this one is $14.99. You're so little, like a teddy bear, he continued. I didn't know what to do and I couldn't bring myself to look at him, so we fumbled through a selection and started walking up front. He followed behind me the entire way. You are cute. Woof. I quickly rang him up and put his chairs aside for him to pick up later. I recounted the story to some of my coworkers and they seemed thoroughly confused. I had to explain that Isaac was hitting on me. A few hours later, he returned and I helped him load his chairs into his car, all while he continued to hit on me. I walked back into the store giggling and then recounted the interaction to my coworkers. One person asked in a somewhat self-important way, well, does he know that you're, you're a boy? That's the only reason he's talking to me. His oh was mixed between trying to show off that he got my gender right, being kind of freaked out by the fact that a gay man was hitting on me, and the implication that I might be a boy who dates boys. Work continued as normal, quiet and slow on a Sunday, and then the phone rang. Hey Kelly, it's Isaac. Oh, hey Isaac, how are you doing? Well, 
I was thinking about getting another one of those chairs, but I don't know if I can get one until tomorrow and I won't be able to pick it up until Friday. Are you gay? A few moments passed in silence as I processed his lack of transition into asking about my sexuality, and I had a split-second realization that I shouldn't even try to get into the politics of queer identities. Instead, I said what he wanted to hear. Yes. Oh, good, I was hoping so. I'm having a birthday party. Here's my phone number. Don't be afraid to use it. I'll call again and let you know about those chairs. And I had every intention of calling, but I let more than a week pass. Finally, my curiosity about his upcoming birthday party got the better of me, and I called after getting home from work one night. I left a short message, wondering if he would even remember who I was. When the phone rang about 10 minutes later, his gushing assured me that he did. He wanted me to come over immediately. I was a bit flattered that he wanted to see me so badly, and I have to admit I was curious, but even I could see that this was a booty call, and it just wasn't something that felt comfortable for me. When he finally realized that I wasn't going to come over, despite his offer to pay for a cab to his place and back home, he relaxed a little and got very chatty on the phone. He kept telling me all of his deep, dark secrets, like how he smokes pot and how I just have to deal with that. You know, he told me about partying really hard over the Halloween weekend. I wasn't able to get many words in edgewise, and when I'd pass in and out of the room in which my roommate Anna was sitting, she'd make faces at the one-word responses I was giving. Cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We decided to meet the next day for lunch, and when I asked where we should meet, he responded, you're coming to my house, I'm cooking for you. I debated whether that was something that felt comfortable, and he just kept talking so I didn't have to respond right away. I decided that I needed to come out to him as trans before being in his space, mostly for my safety in case he had a transphobic reaction. The conversation went something like this. Okay, before I agree to come over, I should tell you my deep, dark secret, which really isn't a secret in my life. It was the first time I had his complete attention. I'm a trans guy. I don't understand. I'm transgender. Can you break that down for me? I was born female. But you're such a cute boy. Thanks, that's the point now. I was happy with his affirmation of my current gender identity. Wait, what does that mean? <laughs> I was socialized as female and am transitioning and identify as a boy now. Oh, well that explains those hips. Um, a little strange, but not out of character for this weirdo. We agreed on a time, 11 a.m., and I went to bed after retelling the bizarre conversation to Anna. One of the interactions was him asking me, so can I fuck you in the ass? Mm, not tomorrow. The next morning, I got a call from Isaac at 9 a.m. Are you still coming? It seemed a bit overwhelming, but I assured him that I would be there. When I got to his place, he was already cooking. He made a delicious spinach salad with grilled chicken. We ate, and he talked. And talked. Sometimes I'd try to say something, but I generally wasn't too successful. He told me all about how much he drank and what he drank over the weekend and how he was, much he was hurting from all the drinking. All the while, he was filling up my glass with wine, and I was starting to feel a bit buzzed. After lunch, we moved to the living room and watched TV. He gave me two options for the TV, Lifetime or Fat Albert. I haven't really been on formal dates in a while, but I didn't expect TV to be part of the day. He was sitting on one of the three chairs I sold him, and I was on a love seat covered with pillows. He proceeded to come on to me pretty aggressively, pushing the line but never quite crossing it. 
It was just unfamiliar terrain and also totally weird. The most memorable line of the afternoon was, so are you going to suck it or should I put it back in my shorts? He kept trying to coax me into giving him a blowjob and I was still trying to figure out what felt okay. I didn't feel unsafe in any way, just a little taken aback by his being so forward. Finally, I agreed and asked for a condom. He laughed, I'm not going to fuck you. I looked up at his face and nodded very seriously. I know. A condom for oral sex? Well, I'm sleeping with some other people right now and need to make sure I'm being safe for them as as well as for me. He could see that I wasn't going to budge, and I was really proud of myself for being able to negotiate the situation. He sighed dramatically and headed off in the direction of the bedroom to get some latex. He came back a second later with nothing, sat back down in his chair, and said, Never mind. I shrugged, said, Okay, and turned back to the TV, which probably wasn't the reaction he wanted. He kept sighing and muttering about how I rejected him. I understand the concept of what he was saying, but I wasn't having it. How did I reject you? You're the one who sat back down over there. Well, I'm not mad at you. I guess I can respect that, being safe. He did eventually come and sit next to me on the love seat, and when I got up to go to the bathroom, he repositioned himself so that the only place for me to sit was between his legs. He asked me, is this okay? I said it was fine and sat down, half laying awkwardly on his chest. We finished watching the movie, and then I drunkenly biked home, told the story to Anna and took a nap to sleep off the wine before I had to be at work in a few hours. After that seriously awkward date, there was no way I was going to miss his birthday party. Plus, Isaac called me several times to give me suggestions for presents. I invited Anna to come and see who all of the stories were about. As we were locking up our bikes, I saw him through the door. He had rented out the community room on the first floor of his high-rise apartment building and was strutting around the lobby. He was wearing black leather pants, no shirt, giant black feather wings attached by a leather chest harness. For accessories, he had black leather hat and was carrying around a toy rifle, cocking it, doing a dance move while watching himself in the mirror, and then shooting it into the air. I want to be clear that I'm 100% in favor of people wearing whatever they want, especially at their own birthday party, and especially considering some of my own fashion choices. It was just unexpected. There weren't too many people there, which seemed to upset Isaac, but he was so busy with the mirror that Anna and I were mostly left alone for about an hour and a half to watch the Janet Jackson DVD that was playing on the giant TV. Because there weren't that many people, we weren't able to sneak out, which was our previously agreed upon escape plan. Eventually, after a costume change for Isaac, we politely said our goodbyes. The next morning, I got a call at 8 a.m. at work. This was not the first time Isaac had called me at work, and I made it clear, again, that he can't call me there. He told me, again, that he had lost my phone number. He sounded upset, so we made a plan to talk again when I got home. When Isaac answered my call, he was crying hysterically. He wanted me to help him feel better about how few people showed up to his birthday party and went back and forth between talking calmly and sobbing. At one point, I said that he wasn't really listening to what I was saying, and his response was that he didn't really want me to say anything, he just wanted to hear my voice. You know the Cheetos guy? I'm smiling like him right now, just hearing your voice. We continued in this pattern, and I was just getting angrier and angrier. You're not listening to what I'm saying. Fine, make your point. I won't say anything. I'll just listen. Go. 
this isn't really how conversations work and things were starting to get tense. Kelly, you're not going to be able to say anything to me that I haven't already heard, but if you want to talk about office supplies, then I'll listen. That comment crossed the line for me. Is that all you think I know? Well, I'm sorry, I have nothing to offer you. And then I made a conscious decision to step back. I was getting too emotionally involved, but he just kept getting more riled up. I'm the one crying over here, and you're... Click. The phone hung up. I shook my head, put down the receiver, and just walked away from the phone. This was getting to be a bit too much for me. Two days passed after the post-birthday phone call and still no word from Isaac. And then the phone rang. I answered, Hello? Are you still being difficult? Too much already. I'm not being difficult. I let him know that I needed to give him a call back, and when I did, his phone was either off or out of range. Two weeks passed, and again, he called me at work. At first, I was pleasant, but he acted mad that I hadn't called him. I explained, again, that he had to call me at home. He agreed to do so and then mentioned that he needs me to do something for him. I told him that we really need to talk before I would agree to do any favors. He asked me to do his back taxes. I repeated that we needed to talk. Before hanging up, he wanted to leave me with a thought. Friends are friends through good times and bad. And he hung up. Was he serious? We're barely even friends. The following Sunday, he called at the time we had set. At least he was punctual. I explained that I thought we just needed different things in our lives right now. He explained to me that friendships take work. I told him that I generally don't feel so good about our interactions. And he kept slowly repeating, I understand what you're saying from your point of view. And then a second later, he'd say, I don't understand. Finally, he got the picture. So you don't want to be friends. I just don't think this is working. Okay, so when are you going to be able to come over and do my taxes? I really don't feel comfortable doing that. And he got upset all over again. He seriously thought that I was still going to do his taxes. Repeat the above conversation, and he finally understood. He told me, I won't be calling you anymore. Have a good life. Stay safe. I can't promise that I'll never see you again. I still sometimes need office supplies. And I really thought it was going to end on a good note. But then he asked, wait, what astrological sign are you? I should have known better and saw where this was going as soon as I answered. Gemini. Oh, right. That multiple personality thing. You do have a lot of work to do. We ended up yelling over each other, and then he hung up on me again. And that was the last time I heard from Isaac. Thank goodness. Looking back, I knew from pretty early on that this wasn't going to be the best match for me, but as a zine writer and storyteller, I was excited about the adventure of it all. As time wore on, and it was taking an emotional toll, mostly manifesting as anger, I realized that everyone has weird dating stories, and this had nothing to do with me being transgender. It was about learning how to navigate boundaries and weird behavior, and determining what kind of people I actually want in my life.
Kelly Shortenclear is one of the co-founders of the Denver Zine Library. Open for over a decade, the DZL has a lending collection of over 20,000 zines. Visit on the weekend or check out denverzinelibrary.org. He's also the exhibitor director for DINK, Denver's independent comic and art expo, happening April 14th through 15th, 2018. More information at dinkdenver.com. Kelly's stories are published in his zine series titled Short and Queer and have been featured at The Narrators, a monthly storytelling night every third Wednesday at Buntport Theater. And maybe you are right now at this very moment listening to this podcast, eating some Cheetos, and you think to yourself, hey, I've got a story. If that's the case, send it on over to us via email at denverorbit at gmail.com or submit on our website, denverorbit.com. And really, even if you're not eating Cheetos and what you have is a song or a little bit of Denver history or some kind of mythology you'd like us to investigate, get in touch with us. We're always looking for good stories. But now, let's switch some gears to some music. Somerset Catalog are no longer a band, unfortunately, and the members are scattered all over Colorado like so many leaves in the fall. But their music is still great, so let's listen to the song, Tired for the Cause.
If you'd like to hear more from Somerset Catalog, you can hear them in all the usual places, SoundCloud, Spotify, and their album Lonely Fang, where this song is from, is for sale at iTunes. And if you head over to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash denverorbit, you can tell us what movies you think would make a hilariously horrible Broadway adaptation. My vote is for uh, the Saw franchise. Oh, that's good. Uh, I was thinking... You know, any of the Joel Schumacher Batman movies, they're already musicals anyway, basically. That's a really solid point. We also have an Instagram page. It's a lot of absurd stuff that we like. One of our followers said that it is, quote, funnier than your stupid memes, unquote. So, you know, that's something. And now our favorite advice columnist, Mary McHugh, stopped by to share some of her deep found wisdom. Dear Mary Wary, whenever I trim my beard, the annoying hair gets everywhere, even if I put down a drop cloth. If I begin trimming my beard out of doors to try to avoid pissing off my partner, will animals use and collect my hair for their lairs slash nests? And, if so, will they have power over me? Signed, Superstitious and Scruffy. Well, Scruffy, what kinds of animals are you talking about? Insects? Birds? House cats? Then, yes. They are all scavengers and mooches, and they will use any discarded materials you have left to build their lairs, as you put it. But the problem actually has nothing to do with wild animals having some sort of weird fairy tale magic or using your perfumed face scraps to line their secret hideouts while they plot your destruction. Although, to be clear, I am not saying that isn't a possibility. The problem is mainly with grooming alfresco. I'm going to give you an awkwardly long and uncomfortable list of reasons why you shouldn't shave outside. 
One, there will be a time, at least one time, when you are wearing your last clean pair of socks while you're drinking your coffee and eating your toast, and you'll glance at the clock and realize that you need to get going. You'll grab your shaver and jog outside, taking two or three strides before you realize that you're soaking your socks, and you will hate this. Two, you'll look like a barbarian. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm the last person to tell someone that they should abide arbitrary conventions at the expense of their personal freedom and happiness. I mean, I'm the one who wears noise-canceling headphones whenever I'm more than two miles from my house so I can concentrate on visual landmarks and not getting lost. But the people that may see you and think you are weird are your neighbors. And if your neighbors think you're weird, they may not invite you to barbecues and the like because they don't trust you around their kids. Next thing you know, their fancy jet ski goes missing and they send the cops where? Right to their jet ski in your shed. I'm speaking from experience here. Three, you'll have to set up a tarp and lights and probably a heater for inclement weather. You may find yourself enjoying it out there. Maybe a little too much. Perhaps you'll begin inadvertently trying to make it more and more comfortable out there, gradually adding a chair or two, maybe a radio and a little table to put your book on. Maybe you'll notice how quiet it is out there without the kids. Maybe you'll just take your toast and coffee out there today. The next thing you know, you'll be living out there and you'll have abandoned your family. You'll smoke your pipe and read your paper under the blue tarp like it's the most natural thing in the world. And four, you could get rabies from one of those aggressive raccoons that live amongst us. But aside from all this common sense, let me ask you this. What actually happens when even with your best drop cloth diligence, you manage to scatter your scraps about the lavatory? Are they still hanging around next time you choose to use the loo, or do they somehow magically disappear? Where do you think they go? Do you think they're carried off by those devious forest creatures casting spells to get you to invite them to dinner? But truly, what do you think becomes of the hairs? I can only assume that you aren't cleaning them up because it seems like that would satisfy your partner. But maybe you should just clean them up. Sincerely, Mary Uary. As I approach middle age, is polyamory increasingly appealing because I'm evolving as a human being or because I'm a sociopath? Signed, not a Pollyanna. Dear Nada, there sure is a lot to unpack in this deceptively simple question. For starters, there are quite a few premises implied that I don't necessarily take for granted. Why, for example, should we assume that antisocial personality disorder and evolution somehow preclude each other? All species continue to evolve as long as they exist, and our adaptations occur because they are rewarded with increased procreation, not because they make us more enlightened. So it's possible that polyamory is appealing to you because your lack of a conscience makes you a better baby maker. I'm not sure it would make you a better parent, but maybe it would. As far as trying to figure out the origins of your newfound curiosity goes, a few questions spring to mind. Have you recently ended a long and passionless relationship? Is the polyamorous circus in town? Uh, are you good at sensing pheromones? I can always tell when there are pheromones in the room because it makes the top of my head itchy. It's also important to factor in any lifestyle or dietary changes. 
I knew a guy who started working in an oyster bar and became untenably aroused to the point of daily lechery soon after. Also, I heard pumpkin-scented candles make you horny, and it's that time of year after all. But I suspect that discovering the cause of your lascivious inclinations is really of secondary concern, and what you're really wondering is, is it okay to be polyamorous? You want permission? Well, first there are a few things to consider. Are you a Mormon? Do you have children who may be confused by the switch? Do you live in a conservative community or in the woods just outside of Eugene, Oregon, like an alternative culture promiscuous Sasquatch? Seriously, I knew a guy. All of these things need to be weighed before making profound life choices. Really, though, the short answer is yes. Go get your rocks off before you shrivel up into a sexless ball of AARP voting issues. It's never too late to catch syphilis. Sincerely, Maryuary. Dear Maryuary, last night my husband and I went out for Chinese. Of course, orange chicken sounded really good. After dinner, our check came with the usual fortune cookies wrapped in cellophane. I held them up and asked my husband to choose his fortune. He picked his cookie, and his fortune was something about having success in life and business. We laughed because that's not really a thing. As he munched away, I opened mine up, and my cookie was empty. I couldn't believe it. I'm terrified this means my time is up, my future is without fortune, and my days are numbered. What should I do? Should I have asked for another cookie? I'm left feeling empty and adrift. Please help, fortuneless cookie. Dear Cookie, this has never happened to me, but I can imagine how you must feel. I myself don't know how to behave without having read my weekly horoscope. I mean, what if I set important boundaries with a coworker when I should be reaching out to an unlikely ally? The result could be catastrophic. So I do sympathize with your missed fortune, and I'm here to help. I have, in the past, put a great deal of stock into the fortunes of cookies like buying a cute fuzzy gremlin from a basement shop in Chinatown, or using ancient Chinese secrets to get stains out of laundry, fortune cookies hold the mystique of a grand and venerable culture. But believe it or not, and I was pretty devastated when I learned this, those things are Western constructions. The truth is, we know very little about what actually goes on in China. I remember the day I watched Iron Man 3 and learned from the Mandarin that fortune cookies are an American invention. I was floored. Turns out the flavorless pockets of hope are baked in factories as a gimmick. As if the mundane origin of the bogus baked goods isn't demystifying enough, the fortunes that go inside aren't even written by professional psychics. It turns out they're just churned out by interns from California State University's marketing program, and they're all copying each other's answers. So even though my initial gut reaction was to agree with you that all is lost and suggest you give up on life utterly and completely. The truth is an empty fortune cookie is a tabula rasa, an opportunity to create your own destiny. So my advice is to avoid all the hocus pocus and snake oil of the American fortune cookie industry and stick to something reliable, factual, and scientific. For example, Western astrology is based on astronomy and Chinese astrology is really old. So those are both great places to start. In the meantime, you can't be too lost, little puppy, because you wrote to me. That was very fortunate. Yours, Maryuary. 
If you'd like to see more of Mary's work, check out flaneurordandy.com. That's F-L-A-N-E-U-R-O-R-D-A-N-D-Y.com or, or, or over on Twitter at MaryWary13. And that's going to do it for us this week. Denver Orbit is written and produced by Josh Madison and Ryan Connell with some editing and sound design by Josh Madison. We have some more really great stuff coming up, so uh, make sure to subscribe. And tell your friends. Oh, and rate us on iTunes. All of that really helps us out a lot. And we'll be back in two weeks. Nope. No. Hi. Hey. Well, hey there, stranger. Jerry, hello. Welcome to Denver Orbit, stranger. (laughs) Hey there, kids. Welcome to Denver Orbit. (laughs) Come and ride with me on an adventure. Denver (laughs) Orbit. It's an audio magazine. The kids are already bored. <laughs> oh, All right. <dear>. Yeah, <clears throat> for real. <laughs> <laughs>